I'm Bill Thompson, and this is Eye on Books. She feels, she says, a little bit vulnerable. For the first time, actress Janine Turner opens up about her private life in a book she calls A Little Bit Vulnerable. In what her publisher calls a breathtaking sweep of her half-century of living, Turner chronicles her journeys through the canyons of her life and how she sought horizons. She includes poetry, essays, opinion editorials, radio interviews, and letters to reveal how she has prevailed over heartbreak, alcoholism, and the death of her father. You've been writing books since you were in third grade, I guess, haven't you? Well, I have always loved to write. Yes, yes. That's amazing that you know that. Um, I guess I talked about that in my book a little bit. Um, when I was uh, in third grade, I won a writing contest, which I just remember they, I remember the moment they threw out some sort of um, subject title line and said, okay, now write. And uh, I won. And so I remember being enthralled with, with just, I don't know, you know, I guess it's just one of those things that, that comes easily to me. I've often joked that it's my great grandfather in heaven who, who loves to write, or who loves to write. But the other is, I've also loved my founding father since I was eight years old, and asked my dad, I said, "Dad, if our founding fathers were to come back today, what would they be most disappointed about?" So I don't know what eight-year-old asked that, but <laughs> I did. I, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I am hugely impressed that you have saved all or, or so many of the things that you've written in your youth, your teenage years, your your twenties. I mean, most of that stuff that that I had is gone somewhere. Well, you know, I'm really grateful to it. I had put it away on a shelf for about let's see, twenty years or so, and hadn't even looked at it again. Twenty, thirty years, I don't know. Time escapes me, <laughs> and. Um, and I am really glad. You know, the poetry, the first chapter is poetry, only the first chapter, so it won't freak people out if they don't like poetry. <laughs> but it really it really packs an emotional punch in a way that just a simple chronalization of my years could never do because it was harnessed during those moments of emotional um, tribulation. It, you know, my poetry back then was my coping skill, my great survival skill. So um, when I found it, I thought, wow, this, this actually makes me feel a little bit vulnerable. But this also, I think, tells a story in a way that, that could, not, could never be captured now. Well, but it's also so raw. And I don't mean in a, in a bad way. I mean, it's raw in the sense that you haven't filtered it through 30 years of experience in the meantime, like so many of us tend to do when we write. You know, if I, if I were to write something that happened when I was in my teens or my 20s, I would filter it through who I am now and what I've experienced in the meantime. But if I, were, if I had things from my writings from back then, as you did, you could see exactly what you were going through and what you were thinking and where your mind was at. Yes, exactly. And that's why I decided to go ahead and be vulnerable and, uh, and publish it because I thought it just it can't be replicated. Um, and it's, it's just gotten a tremendous response where people say that exact thing. It's like, wow, you know, because I literally wrote it during, during those times. I mean, uh, good, bad, traumatic, uh, dramatic, whatever they were. I, I wrote it down in a thick of the emotional because it literally, because I was, you know, I, I document my sobriety through early sobriety through those days as well. And so I had poetry before sobriety and after sobriety. And, and it really shows a walk through sobriety in a way uh, that really wouldn't be able to capture it in a basic sort of uh, looking back in the rearview mirror type thing. It, was, it all happened in the raw right then there because I would sit down and instead of picking up a drink, I would sit down with a little typewriter mm. and I would just pound away and write or, and it really, it really took me sober. It was a great tool. Well, so was it difficult then to decide what would go in this book and what maybe wouldn't? 
Well, a little bit. I didn't put everything in there. Um, some, some was just too vulnerable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe that's for the next book, a little more vulnerable. Um, <laughs> but it was, uh, so there were some that, that I didn't put and, and I, I wanted to, you know, but pretty much I put about, I put about 95% of it in there. Wow. I mean, that's uh, without being too much of a play on words, that is being vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, if, if it's any consolation to you as a side note, I mean, many of us on this side, of the microphone feel a little awkward making people like you feel a little bit vulnerable because there is, I mean, when you put your life out there, especially in a very frank way, like you have, we have a responsibility not to, to take unfair advantage of that and try to poke you with it. I mean, it's, we, have, we should instead respect you for what you've done, which is to lay bare the parts of your life that maybe other people wouldn't. Well, I appreciate it. Not everybody's that classy, um, I might add. Um, but, you know, I just feel the reason I did it is is because I thought, well, if someone can, can read this and see that I went through this, because I think a lot of people, a lot of people wouldn't expect that I went through times like this. Um, and so if they can read that and say, wow, she survived it, she overcame it, she did it, in a sober manner, you know, maybe I can too. It's, you know, if one person gets through a depressed time or decides to get sober in some sort of way, then it, then it's worth it. The whole thing's worth it. Well, you know, the, the, obviously the stereotype of actors in general, you must be high or drunk at all times on something or other, because, uh, you know, we've all heard the stories of, you know, uh, of celebrities who we loved and respected. And it turned out they went through their entire career stoned or high or drunk or whatever. I mean, how, do, how, do you then fight that stereotype and reveal to us, well, okay, not all of us are like that. Well, I talk about that in my book, actually. And, um, you know, I, I believe having walked through this, having, I did some acting before and then I did a lot of acting after because I, you know, this is before Northern Exposure. I got sober at age 23, but we are more in touch with our emotional life, uh, with, with our feelings when we don't you know, and I never did drugs, it was all alcohol, but when we don't use or drink, I believe we are more in touch with our emotions, uh, more vulnerable, more able to, to, to bring the light, the, 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 the openness of soul, so to speak, that one needs to reveal on screen. Um, and that's, so that's a misnomer. I think a lot of actors think that, like, oh, if I were to get sober, then, then I wouldn't be able to, to act. Or, but that, I think that's wrong. I think it actually blocks. I think for those who have the hereditary gene and for struggle with alcohol, um, I think that it, it blocks all the God-given purpose and destiny within one's life. And it's very, very unfortunate. And I also, uh, when I watch actors, I want to see them, if they're portraying drunk or, or drugged or something of that nature, I want to see them act that. That's acting. If I can tell on screen that someone looks, they're supposed to be playing drunk or drugged and they are drunk and drugged, I consider it a cheat. That's not acting. It's not acting at all. <laughs> that's just that's just their reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's much more fascinating uh, to watch someone like Meryl Streep, who you know is sober when she acts, portray to portray as someone uh, in a movie I saw recently that she did. What was it? It was oh gosh, I can't forget that. Mm, uh, yeah. County, yeah. County. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and you know, she's such a professional. She was sober to watch her play drunk. It's fascinating. But if you know someone already is, it's it's not. Well, having wrestled with alcoholism yourself, does it make you at all uncomfortable now to see like 60s sitcoms where they deal with drunkenness as a punchline? I mean, when you have Foster Brooks and and Otis the Town Drunk on the Andy Griffith show and we treat it, har, 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 that's so funny. It's not so funny. 
No, it's not funny. Um, I think that the, I, I won't even go see those movies that are out now, even um, about the, the hangover movies, because, um, you know, a lot of people, when they go into blackouts, um, which people don't really even understand, a blackout is when you're still functioning, but you just don't remember what you're doing, and as opposed to just passing out. A lot of people have blackouts, and so they're functioning, but they don't remember anything, and that's when really devastating, tragic things occur. Um, in people's lives, and um, it's just really not funny at all. And you know, interestingly enough, um, one of my I, I go you know, my first sector is about early sobriety and poetry, but then I go into essays on the Federalist and opinion editorials, and, and then a chapter at the at the end of the book is about how to keep sobriety. It deals more with now that I have 28 years, and I go into more depth about um, with all different types of genres: uh, radio talk show transcripts, speeches, a, a transcript with Bob Beckel. Um, a Democrat, but we find common ground about sobriety. And, and I even have a letter from my great-grandfather, uh, we call him Grandpa J.B., who at, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, was was withdrawing from John Barleycorn, is what he called it. Mm. And he wrote. See, I'm, I'm grateful he wrote. He did the same thing. He wrote uh, later, he chronicalized about 20 years later, what it was like for him to go through or maybe he did it then, but he dated it you know, later, to what it, was go- what it was like to go through the withdrawals with the snakes he saw on the wall and the, the raccoons and, <laughs> and pictures talking. And so I took that in the book as well. And so it's just, just a real, it's a journey. Wow. Now, I wanted to ask you, you were so devoted to your father, and he passed away as you were putting this book together. How did that change the way you finished the project? Oh, it changed it drastically. I was compiling the book. I was, it was one of my New Year's resolutions, and I was really working at, you know, very avidly on it. And uh, then I get the call that my father died, and my whole world was just shattered. I love my father. I'm sitting in this chair right now, as a matter of fact. And um, I went through, I just I just did somersaults through four months. And, um, you know, my father was a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. He was one of the first to fly twice the speed of sound in the Air Force and in the, in the B-50 at Hustler. And I just loved him. We were a lot alike. We were so, he was like my sole parent. And so what I did once again is I sat down with the pen and I wrote two poems um, about what it was like dealing with his death. But they're pretty dark. Um, and then I wrote a letter to him. And, and that letter just took sort of a real prose type of feel. And it's gotten a really a kind of a, People say they read it and they just cry. It's it's gotten a mm. a really nice response. People are very touched by it, and um, so I just kind of bear all bear it all out there too about what I've learned about when something loves one passes and, and my reflection on his life and how it affects me now. And it's it was pretty intense. And once again, it was a it was a wonderful cathartic way for me to deal with it. And and everyone's you know lost someone at some point. So once again, I thought it might be a you know perhaps. Mm-hmm. Shed, shed some sort of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about one of the ironic things, and that is that people will will respect you for talking about your, your alcoholism. They'll respect you for the great love for your father. They'll think your poetry is magnificent. But when it comes to your political views, there are people who would just shut their minds, and they wouldn't even want to hear what you have to say. Is it tough to be a conservative these days? Yes, it's tough to be a conservative, and, and ironically, it's tough to sell a book. <laughs> they might go, oh, I love the poetry, I love the, oh, oh, she's a conservative, forget about it. Um, but it, it is, it is. It, I mean, not to the conservative audience, of course, but to the broader audience. But that's that's actually, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to reach, why I did it this way, because 
you know, I've lived in Hollywood a long time. Uh, the majority of my life was spent in show business so far, and I still I did three movies this past year, so I'm still active. And I've seen, I've seen, I've lived in that liberal world, and and I have, um, I've experienced and, and had a lot of good friends and 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 whatnot, and so I, I experienced their humanness. So my angle is wider, uh, you know, I have more of a wide angle lens and a zoom lens, and and what I'm hoping is that someone might pick this book up. Um, who maybe doesn't follow my my conservative political career and, uh, you know, be enlightened somewhat or, or, or find out that Republicans really aren't that bad, you know, <laughs> or that the Constitution's nonpartisan. Um, but, yes, it's very difficult to be a conservative in Hollywood. A lot of people don't even speak out. Um, I had someone get out of a trailer once and come up and whisper in my ear and said, I'm with you, but don't tell. <laughs> um, that's when I was campaigning for McCain Palin, just because they're afraid of losing work. And I, I tackle that a lot in my opinion editorials in the book about the hypocrisy in Hollywood and even uh, what Wall Street does. I, I mean, Madison Avenue, not Wall Street, but what Madison Avenue does with their advertising. You know, it's so incredibly ironic to me that they hire uh, liberal actors who hate big business to do big bank commercials. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, if hey, listen, if you, you could put together a whole book just of the ironies. Uh, of, of, yes, yes, <laughs> uh, I but, tackle a few of those. But as you look back on it now, and and again, this is probably an unfair, unfairly oversimplified question. But as you look back on it now, might it have been, from a political standpoint at least, a mistake to have married Alec Baldwin? <laughs> well, I was engaged. We never got married. Um, right, but, but I mean, but I mean, if you've got, I mean, strictly from a political standpoint, I'm not, I don't want to talk huh? about your, the relationship, but just, just yeah, from yeah. the politics. <laughs> that, that would have been, would have been better if I had married him. Oh, would have been, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's a good thing that you didn't. Oh, I see what you're asking. You know, career-wise, yes, it would have been much better. Uh, <laughs> yes, because we're, as a conservative, you are not a part of the A-list. Um, you don't get to go to the hobnob and to the parties and whatnot. Now I've been there when I'm nominated for awards and stuff, but just socially, mm-mm, you're you're excluded. So yeah, if I had exactly, I may have been a <laughs> part of an A-list couple but, <laughs> in but, the Democratic circles. But you know, there are, there are so many people who have followed your career all these years and they've loved you and all the things that you do. I don't I I, I don't sense that you've really lost out on a whole lot, have you? I mean, because because um, of your views. No, you know, some, I, I think there are some things for sure. Absolutely. Um, just, just for no other reason. I, I just, you know, I wasn't willing to take my clothes off or, you know, it's like mm-hmm. a lot of my comrades were whipping their tops off and I didn't want to do that either. So, I mean, it might've, but, but you're right. I mean, I, I think that there are, um, Northern exposure was awesome. A great, great experience in my life. I, I just did, uh, you know, you don't really know a lot of the movies that you don't get or why you don't get them, but, but I just um, I have worked and continue to work, and and I think that it's 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 you do miss out on some work, but Hollywood isn't an all bad place, which but is what I I like to say. From from what I've been told, if you are working, you are a successful actor. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, and also we should we should perhaps mention your daughter is also a published author. My daughter is a published author, and that's so exciting. My gift from God, my sweet beautiful daughter. And uh, her first, when, when I, I launched a, a, um, a foundation entitled Constituting America in 2010, and in 2008, 2009, I sat down with her and we read the Constitution in a Hammock together. I reread it, and it was, but it was the first time for her. And afterwards, I'm like, I just really understand exactly what they meant. And so I started listening to uh, some seminars, and I heard about Federalist Papers, and I heard about Federalist Paper 62, 
And I just remember freezing in my in one spot when I heard James Madison talking about the fact that if the laws are so voluminous that they can't be read or so incoherent that they can't be understood, it'll be of no avail for men to vote of men of their own choice, you know, in the Republic, so to speak. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so incredibly relevant. So uh, I launched Constituting America. And one year I homeschooled my daughter just one year. It was her seventh grade year. But we had this great seminar on um, at Constitution America, a 90-day seminar where we had scholars from across the country break down the Constitution line by line by line. So I tell my daughter, go down and read these from these scholars and professors. She's only 12. And uh, write them for kids. And she did. And they were so good, they got picked up by Harper's Collins, Zondervan <laughs> Publishers. Wow. And her first book, Our Constitution Rocks, was released, I guess, this is 2014 in 2012. And um, did so well that Barnes & Noble sat down with Zondervan and said, we want, we want one thing from you. And they said, what? And they said, more books from Juliet. Oh. So now she has our president's rock. And I suppose this is not a book that mommy writes for her. She writes every bit of herself. We spent her summer before last researching the entire thing. Dog did the pages, now pages she was going to read every, every, every day. And she put this book together. And it, they're both really awesome. They're great for kids, but adults love them too because they're a fabulous reference book written in a tone that's um, – kids can understand there are illustrations and whatnot, but it's, it's also smart enough and um, in depth enough that adults can really, really gather a lot of information from it as well. Sounds like you're keeping the writing gene going. There you go. Yeah. A little bit vulnerable by Janine Turner is published by Dunham books with eye on books. I'm Bill Thompson.